What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, welcome to the Naughty But Nice Show. I'm your host, Rob Shooter. Normally, uh, we don't do these special edition bonus shows because there's not normally that many special people that I think we want to do one with. But today's the exception. We have a fantastic vocal coach, Stuart Pierce, who has been a vocal coach to many, many big celebrities. However, it is his new book, Diana, the voice of change, which I can't put down that we're going to be talking about today. Not only Princess Diana's vocal coach, but also her friend. Hey, Stuart, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you. It's a great honor for you inviting me on. I'm so pleased. We are thrilled to have you. Let's jump in because we've got so many questions. I've also got some questions from the listeners of this show too. Nothing to worry about. We're, we're naughty, but we're nice on this show. Uh, so it will be fun, fun, fun. Hey, Stuart, how did you meet Princess Diana? Let's go right back to the beginning. How did this start? Well, I was actually recommended to meet her uh, probably around 92, 93 when she was caught by the controversy of trying to find a way of leveraging herself away from the acrimonious relationship that she was beginning to develop with Prince Mm -hmm. Charles. 
Um, and, you know, to be honest, although it was a great honor to be asked, I turned it down saying I didn't think that I could be available for it because of the drama that was going on, but that possibly there would be at a later stage. So it was very prophetic that I did that because then in 95, when the Martin Bashir interview came out, that Diana came back via a friend of ours, a mutual friend, a patroness of mine, in fact, who was uh, a very celebrated restaurateur at a restaurant which is no longer called San Lorenzo in Knightsbridge. And Diana was a frequent visitor, but the lady who owned it, Mara Burney, was, was an extraordinary mother figure to many people. And so, for example, the Rolling Stones would call her in the middle of the night after a concert and say, Mara, could you make a spaghetti? And she would be up at three o'clock in the morning making boys spaghetti. It gives an illustration of the extraordinary love that this woman had. And so Mara had introduced me to a number of leading people and said to me, would you, would you please come and have lunch to meet somebody? And I said, oh, who is it? So she said, well, just come and then you'll introduce. And I said, no, tell me, who is it? She said, do you trust me? So I said, of course I trust you, but who is it? Just come and meet them. And so I arrived with just a feeling of anticipation, not trepidation, because I absolutely trusted her. And uh, as I walked into the restaurant, there was the head waiter, and I said to the head waiter, you know, Pepe, where is Madame? Oh, she's downstairs. I said, who with? And he said, you'll see when you get there. So it was this great build-up that when I got to this private room in the basement of a restaurant, I knocked on the door and opened the door, and there was Diana, who sprang up, grabbed my arm, and said, you will work with me, won't you? So I said, I've been set up. Uh, anyway, it was the most extraordinary moment. And of course, of course, of course, things were very different at that point from the earlier, earlier encounter that I was describing. Um, but I said to Diana immediately, look, if we work together, we must have a completely confidential relationship because you're surrounded by a circus of activities. And I don't want the paps to get the idea that you're seeing, you know, she'd already finished working with Peter Zetelin, who was another um, actor monkey uh, voice coach that she'd worked with, who I, I believe had been quite useful, but she wanted something a little bit more mature, a little bit more sophisticated. You know, she's, she'd moved on. That's no disrespect to Peter, of course, who then latterly went and allowed all of his tapes to be used by YouTube for some reason. Anyway, um, so that's how it began. We had a confidential relationship. Whenever she needed me, she called me on her cell phone because in 95, we were all beginning to play with cell phones. They were quite large, weren't they? Um, and I never went to Kensington Palace. She always came to my studio in Chelsea, so it was completely confidential. She would call me whenever she needed to. Sometimes she would come for two sessions a week. Um, and she always, you know, always dispatched my fee in cash it was never through the administration. You know, it was all completely confidential. Oh, wow. So, Stuart, let me ask. People might not understand this. I'm not sure I do either. Why would somebody like Princess Diana need a vocal coach? Well, I mean, she saw the Martin Bashir interview and felt that she was very proud of herself in terms of the liberation of the conviction of her statement. But she didn't like the way that she sounded and she didn't like the way that she looked. You know, because again, she was being submissive, and uh, the voice was very breathy. You know, it was all sort of slightly, uh, well, there are three people in this marriage, rather like this, as opposed to having weight, gravitas, a feeling of her own sovereignty. And of course, that's what, that was the particular 
spell, as it, if you like, that I shared with her and worked with her on. I mean, there were references because I'd worked with a number of other senior statespeople before Diana, and one of them was Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, moved from this pseudo upper middle class sound that she'd acquired at Oxford. But it was all terribly sort of like this, you know? And, uh, and, and Bernard Ingham, who was the, um, the communications director of the Conservative Party, said, I think that Margaret needs to find weight. So there was always an, already an example there, you know, that Margaret and I worked together in the Commons very early in the morning, you know, after a session had finished. And I had her bowling her voice across the chamber of the Commons so that she became really into that notion of, oh, no, Mr. Kinnock, you know? And everybody mm. said, oh, wow. That the Iron Lady steps forth. <laughs> Did it take a long time for you to develop trust, a relationship with Princess Diana? Oh no, that was immediate. She was such a darling. It was immediate. What? Why do you think that was? Because she'd been betrayed by so many people, including arguably uh, her husband. I was thinking it was to do with Mara, you see, that she completely, implicitly trusted Mara Burney. Mara Burney was a surrogate mother to Diana unofficially speaking, you know. And Diana was just so yielding and surrendering. This was part of the difficulty. And one of the things that I needed to do was to suggest to her psychological boundaries, energetic boundaries, because she was just completely open, spilling out everywhere, trying to find a way of using her love as a depth charge to bring people in whom she could connect with on an empathic level. Wow. Now... You tell a story that made me giggle about going to the movies with Princess Diana. Please share it. <laughs> well, Diana loved to be daring, loved to be ordinary. You know, she was very aware of the extraordinary nature of her status. But at the same time, she loved to be kitchen sink. You know, she loved to be extremely ordinary and um, was a very physically oriented woman. Um, meaning that she was very in tune with her body, so she swam every day, she worked out every day. You know, she wasn't living in an ivory tower of cerebralization. She was very alive within the quickened nature of her body. And so she was always trying to find escape routes away from formality, you know, because after all, what she did was to really introduce us to another way of being away from the formal, the patriarchal formal. And so one day she said, let's go to the movies. And I said, what do you mean go to the movies? And she said, no, let's go to the movies. And I said, what are you talking about? How can we? And she said, well, I'll, what I'll do is I'll wear a disguise. So I said, what? But everybody will know who you are. And what happens if we don't have personal protection officers? I mean, what, what do we do? And she said, we won't, we, we won't be discovered. My disguise will be so effective. So I said, okay, I'm up for it. <laughs> it sounds like fun. And so she said, well, meet me at the end of Palace Row. We always called it Palace Row, at the bottom of the, the gates of Kensington Palace on High, High Street, Kensington, which, you know, is not necessarily familiar to people in the United, in the United States, but in, people in London know it very well. And so I arrived, and I stood waiting, thinking, where is she? Um, and what's interesting is there's another road next to the entrance to... Um, Kensington Palace, which is known as Embassy Row, where some of the principal embassies are, particularly the Russian embassy. And there was a girl standing there wearing a trench coat and a long blonde wig and sunglasses. And I thought she was Russian. And then <laughs> I, walked, I was walking up and down thinking, where's Diana? She's late. And suddenly the sunglasses lifted and there was Diana's eyes. 
and she giggled. And then we ran giggling down High Street Kensington to the movie theatre, you know, to the Odeon Kensington to see Jerry Maguire. Of course, I bought the tickets, I bought popcorn, and uh, we went to see the movie. I seem to remember we had an absolutely wonderful time. And then afterwards, she said, let's go and have pizza. So we went to a small cafe in the northern part, just north of Kensington Palace, that was known as the Diana Cafe. It was just great fun. I mean, she was, she was, but she she was immensely immediate and funny and grounded and ordinary and intelligent and prescient and empathic. I mean, she was one of the most glorious people that I've ever met. And so she was happy to be around London without her security guards. Well, you remember by that time when HRH had been removed, the privilege of having PPOs had also been removed. Uh, she was really happy about that because it meant mm. that she could get into her car. She was a superb driver. She would get into a car and drive, not in, ex in, in, in exceeding the speed limit, but she would drive really, really fast. So if Paps were chasing her, she was really good at being able to release herself from that chase, you know, because she knew London so well. She knew all the back streets in the areas of Chelsea and Fulham where she, you know, would, would frequent gyms and me and other people that she visited. Do you think she would have made an excellent Uber driver? <laughs> she would have been a stunning Uber driver. She was an amazing driver. I mean, really, really competent. It was almost <laughs> as though, you know, her wheels were, were her, second, her second kingdom. Did she have a celebrity crush? Did she talk about guys? Did Diana have a celebrity crush? Well, she loved George Michael. She loved um, Elton John. They were the principal people that she liked, you know? Right. Um, but they were friends. Like, they were in her life as friends. Some of them are gay men. Was there ever that, that guy, that George Clooney, that just made her swoon like everybody else? Well, there were a number of George Clooney's, yes. You know, I mean, Diana was very quickened. I mean, she was very vital, immensely alive. And so, you know, one of the things that we both shared... As a, as a common likeness is that you know we felt that if we didn't fall in love once a week with someone that we we weren't fully alive. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say that it was um, you know a, an intense reciprocation. It was just right. looking at somebody and thinking, oh my goodness, you're so beautiful. Do you know how amazing you are? That was something that Diana was always doing as well. Is it true that she liked to do your washing up? <laughs> She always wanted to become grounded or earth. So she would arrive and say, darling, can I iron your shirts? And I would say, uh, no, but I've got some crockery for you to wash up. And so we would always go into the kitchen and she would do the washing up. I mean, I would leave cups and saucers and things like that, not heavy duty, you know, dinner plates from the night before. Um, but, she, you know, she was really into cleaning. She loved cleaning. She was a very, when she had the apartment in Earl's Court, you know, that uh, she was always cleaning it. She loved it. I love this. I love, I can imagine her now with a vacuum cleaner and a duster and um, singing George Michael as she dusts Absolutely, away. in yellow gloves. <laughs> Rubber gloves. Let, let me ask you about the book. I'm reading it now, and it really is. It's a it's a revelation. You tell me stuff about somebody that I thought we all we all think we know very very well. What do you think is the most surprising thing that um, people are going to find out about the princess in your book, The Voice of Change? Hmm. How interesting. 
Nobody's asked me that question, and I think I've probably done at least 500 interviews since the publication. I profess that the book answers the unanswerable and questions the unquestionable. So, of course, there is the big curiosity or mystery or enigma of what was her death all about? And so I enter into an understanding, it's only a perception, of what the death, what her death was all about, which I'm going to further in my next book, because I just happened to have met the Roman Catholic priest that was called to her body on the last night and spent six hours in vigil with her body. And he's given me an interview. It's the first time he's given an interview, so I'm going to record, you know, use the interview, so to speak, in the, my next book. Um, the point was that where she chose to pass, so to speak, obviously she was being chased by the Paps, uh, was in a nefarious murder, a ritual killing. That we can't answer, but we can you know, produce uh, conjecture, uh, hyper-conjecture indeed. Um, but the place where she chose to die was really very interesting because um, the Pont de Almar tunnel in Roman times was the Temple of Diana. Wow. So, you know, I, I leave that as a spicy detail for all listeners to want to buy the book. Absolutely, yeah. And then why did you tell this story now? You've, 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 you've felt the pushback, you've read the pushback. Some people say, leave her alone, let her rest in peace. Why did you do this book now? It started with me remembering something that she said to me when we said goodbye at our last meeting before she went on holiday. When she just, en passant, she was very impetuous, she just simply said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we, we wrote a book about this, what, all that we've been through, but let's not do that until the children are married. So it was very en passant. And of course I noted it, uh, but at the same time I was dealing with a thud inside my body that happened when she hugged me and said goodbye, because it was wonderful that she was going on holiday, and she was going on holiday with Dodie, who was an adorable man and would look after her extraordinarily well, and they were going to the south of France, and you know, it was going to be all of that wonderful luxury that she so loved, that um, heightened state of existence, you know. But at the same time, the thud was more to do with the fact that I had a presentiment about the fact this was the last time I was going to see her. And so I sat on memory, and then, four or five years ago, when a number of my Hollywood actresses were involved in disclosure of the way that they were maltreated by people like Harvey Weinstein, I mean, I speak his name because it's now a public, it's public disclosure, but there were other people, you know, that, were, that I heard about, and they were outraged by what happened, but at the same time they were terrified that they would be marred in their careers if they step forward and spoke. And so they said, well, what should we do? And I said, but you're the voice of change, okay? And I said, for example, Diana. And suddenly, all of the information that I remembered about aiding and abetting, so to speak, Diana, to find her voice, not just simply to find it from a physical point of view in the way that we've already spoken of, but also to find out how can she dispatch the unique intelligence of the way that she wanted to liberate herself from what she considered to be an ar archaic hegemony, mm. not in, in, in any denial or dispute over the, the extraordinary nature of tradition, of heritage, and of history, which of course she had immense respect and admiration for. I mean, she adored the Queen, Mama, 
Um, she thought the Queen was absolutely extraordinary, but at the same time, the levels of austerity where people weren't touched, you know, that it had to be glove against glove and not skin against skin in shaking hands, that Diana experienced great criticism from the establishment. And so I helped her find her voice. So I was really <laughs> using that template and allowing it to inspire the voices of these extraordinary ladies that I've just referred to. So that's how the book came back into memory. And my literary agent turned to me and said, well, you work with Diana, why don't you write a book? And I said, I'm never going to write a book. But then all at the same time, all of this interesting conversation, you know, and the New York Times interviewed me over one of, one of the, she wasn't an actress, she was a director that I worked with who had been abused continuously by uh, a certain person who I think was eventually uh, uh, um, taken to court over the whole process, you know. You, you talked about Dodie. Uh, one of Diana's close friends once told me uh, that Dodie was the best sex of her life. Did she ever talk about things like this with you? So uh, Dodie was the best sex of Diana's life or the person who told you? Diana's life. <laughs> Dodie was an amazing... Yes, of course we talked about it. I mean, Diana was very, very, very free. You know, once you were, once you were entrusting, once you were enraptured by the kingdom of the, the, the extraordinariness of Diana, then she was in, in absolute trust. But, I mean, she shared a lot of confidential information about her childhood and the way that she had been abused or denigrated or, you know, subjugated in, in really, really painful ways. So when somebody shares that amount of information, you know, that they Stuart, were Stuart, but, but you yes, do know. But you, yes, you of course, know. I mean, they, you know, he, he was a very sensual, loving man who was immensely passionate. So I believe that they had a very, very happy time. The best? The best sex. Yes. Um, I don't remember Diana saying that. But then Diana wasn't just simply, um, you know, a, a free Martin in the, way, in, the way, in, in the frame of George Orwell. You know, she wasn't just simply a sexual object. Diana needed to know that her heart was entrusted in the, in the, the whole substance of making love. So she didn't talk about having sex. She talked about making love. And there is, there is a distinct difference. So she was not a slut. She didn't give herself easily. But when she was aroused, and she was ex obviously an extraordinarily beautiful, sensual lady. I mean, look at the elegance of the way that she moved in the clothes that she wore, which for some reason has been omitted in the new movie Spencer. You know, that Kristen hasn't been able to see that Diana was all about elegance and flow, whereas mm. Kristen's performance is very mannered. It's very jerky. It's very staccato. And there was nothing staccato about Diana, even when in the height of passion, you know, she she was not jagged and jerky. Talking about looking after her heart, though, you have done that in this new book, Stuart Pierce. The book is called Diana, the Voice of Change. My name is Rob Shooter. Hey, Naughties, thank you for listening to the Naughty Benai Show. Pick up a copy of the book now. It's available on Amazon.com. And remember, if you're going to be naughty, you've got to be nice. Take care, everybody. It's Naughty But Nice with Rob. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.